Okay, well, welcome to Theology the Live Sessions, second instalment. Um, last month uh, we obviously covered theology in general and how to study it without damaging your faith, is what I called it. And uh, we were trying to get away from this, uh, this Tower of Bricks approach where our relationship with God and our relationship with Jesus is precariously balanced on top of this network of interlocking ideas and, and doctrines and beliefs that have to all be true for us to have some faith. Um, the problem with that, of course, if somebody comes along and pokes any of these bricks or um, tries to adjust anything that we think, it all goes a bit wobbly and our relationship with Jesus can come crashing down. And uh, hopefully by now we're familiar with, uh, with that and the idea that we, we place our relationship with God on something a bit broader than that. It includes truth, it includes doctrine, but it's so much more than that. So that if somebody comes along and adjusts something, um, we're still secure, we're still sound. Okay, so um, one of the things that is often right at the bottom of this pile of bricks is the Bible. Uh, you know, the bottom brick is often the Bible is the Word of God, you know, and I, I explained how a lot of systematic theologies sort of start that way and therefore almost encourage this kind of thinking. But we need to handle the Bible correctly. Um, I've started here with uh, a quote from 2 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul saying, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. So in that passage, he's, he's warning Timothy about quarrels, about words, about controversies and arguments. And he's saying, look, you need to correctly handle the message, you know, and by that he means the gospel, but also, no doubt, the scriptures that they had. So how do we handle it correctly? Well, handling it badly often results when we try and make the Bible do something or perform a function that it was never intended to perform. So I'm just going to go through a few possible or rather, you know, quite common approaches that are unhelpful. Um, so that we can see then later on what's a better way. So the first approach is what I've called here the literal approach. And I've heard people say, oh, I take the Bible literally whenever possible. And they say it almost as, well, I'm, I'm on solid ground here. I, I'm kind of, I'm doing the right thing. And I, you know, that's the safest and best way to approach scripture. Um, the problem comes when you get into areas of the Bible which uh, either... You know, you get into Revelation with its multi-headed beasts and all that kind of stuff. How do you take that literally? And if you don't take into account the culture and the worldview of the Bible and you start taking it literally in the way we see it from the 20th century, then you're 20, 21st, sorry, I'm still a few years out of day. <laughs> um, then you get tied in knots, basically. Um, so you, get in, you can actually just get into error. So it's not the safe way. To view the Bible. Yes, it does contain literal truth, but it's not, you know, we can't just blindly take everything literally. Secondly, uh, the legal approach, you know, this is where, this is a very sad state of affairs really, but you take the Bible as a book of laws, a book of commands to be obeyed. Um, it really gives the wrong impression of God and the gospel and, and it ties people up, you know, it's sort of, a, it's a very sad, pressurised, guilty way to view the Bible as, as if I've got a keep the Bible and I've got to keep all its commands. Um, 
Now, many of us Christians are saying, you know, consciously we say, no, that's not the way we view the Bible. But unconsciously, some people still feel this, this sort of weight of, I must do this, I must do that. Um, alternatively, we've got what I've called the doctrinal approach. And this is where we use the Bible as a hammer to beat each other over the head about our particular doctrinal beliefs. And we, uh, we try and prove ourselves. And we, we believe that the Bible spells out doctrine clearly. Um, now, actually, it doesn't. <laughs> um, people say, well, of course the Bible, Bible is, has got doctrine in it. Well, yes, it does. But if you ask a group of people, okay, then, what's your doctrine on what happens the moment somebody dies? You'll get lots of different answers. You know, some people will say, oh, well, you know, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. Clearly black and white in the Bible. And other people will say, well, yeah, but what about the final judgment then? What about, you know, this sort of end, end of time judgment and and somebody will say oh well yeah but the bible says that we'll all sleep so it'll be like going to sleep and then hundreds of years might pass and then we'll wake up and it'll be like no time's passed at all and then somebody else will say yeah but what about paul saying um it's better to depart and be with christ he was anticipating some kind of conscious what we might call the intermediate state and so you it's not as clear as people think and so there's different interpretations, there, there are different viewpoints that the different writers and books of the Bible seem to put out. So the Bible simply isn't a cast iron statement of doctrine. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's not the way we should use it. It wasn't written for that, for that reason. And then we have the, uh, the Bill of Rights approach. Uh, this is quite a common one. Um, the Bible is a book of wonderful promises. Well, it does have lots of great promises in it. But some people almost treat it as a list of guarantees, almost like a contract. And so if you've got a problem in life, you go through the contract, the Bible, you pick the promise, the, the statement that, that, that fits your bill, and then you wave the contract under God's nose and say, you've got to do this, you're contractually obliged to fulfill this need of mine. Um, it's interesting, people often use uh, the book of Proverbs for this, you know, um, we may cover this later in, in when we talk about hermeneutics, but Proverbs weren't written to be promises. Proverbs were written as wisdom so that we know how life normally works. So generally speaking, if you do this, this will be the result. This is the way of the world. This is the way things happen. But we often pick out a proverb and say, right, that's a promise from God, and I'm going to hang on to that. Now, it is possible for God to illuminate a particular verse, even taking stuff out of context and bring that to life and use that and it becomes a living word to us. I'm not saying that isn't right. But Proverbs particularly are wisdom for life, not guarantees of a particular outcome. So, but it's not healthy anyway, is it, to see the Bible as a contract that we can wave under God's nose and say, you know, this says this, this, this and this, therefore you've got to do it. Um, a little, that's a little bit of a caricature of the way people often often approach it, but I'm deliberately going to a bit of an extreme to, to make the point. So it's not a bill of rights, neither is it an instruction manual. You know, people sometimes view the Bible as, as God's user guide, you know, God's manual for life that tells us everything we need to know about um, what we should do, how we should organise ourselves as church, um, how to live life. But it does have some wise words to say, but it doesn't really clearly tell us 
what we what we should wear, what we should eat, um, how we should do our finances, what you know, how to organise ourselves. You know, how do you appoint church leaders? Um, a number of different denominations do it differently because they've seen different things in the Bible and they think, well, that's the way the Bible teaches. And wouldn't it be liberating to think that the Bible presents what happened in the first century um, and it says some general stuff about the character of leaders and, and the rough parameters of what they're meant to do, but it doesn't really spell out how we should meet, who we should do it with, how large the groups should be, how we should organise ourselves, how we appoint leaders. It doesn't really say that, but wouldn't it be liberating if, if God deliberately did that so that in every culture, in every day, every time and place, the Holy Spirit could guide us to do something that's appropriate for our culture. Um, so the details are rather vague in, in those things. <clears throat> so it's not a user guide, it's not a, a, a detailed instruction manual. It does contain some good instruction, but it's usually about character stuff, not about specific details. So, okay, so science textbook approach. Um, this is where we've got to remember that the Bible reflects the worldview of the people that wrote it. Um, they didn't have a, the same understanding of, of, of nature, of the world as we do. Um, neither do we have the same understanding as people who will follow us. Um, it was limited, but that doesn't stop the Bible being God's word. Um, an extreme example of this, um, the Bible, because in those days the people didn't understand infertility, they believed that if people were having difficulty having children, then it was the woman's fault. The woman was barren. Um, and so some Christians taking the Bible as scientifically true, have denied the existence of male infertility, which isn't helpful. <laughs> um, and it's just erroneous, you know, but the Bible isn't intending to teach us science. It does have some stuff in it that's consistent with science, as we were talking about the other day, Maria. Um, you know, the Big Bang, you know, that was an offence to scientists originally. They believed that there was a, that the universe had always existed, and the idea that there was a beginning was kind of offensive to, to sort of classical science of the day but it's been proven you know and it, it ties up with scripture but when we start to take passages like Genesis chapter 1 and try and map that onto science we're misunderstanding what the Bible's there for you know the Bible isn't there they, were, they didn't write Genesis 1 to explain it in a scientific way they wrote Genesis 1 um, to draw the distinction between their God and the other gods that were around in the world and to to, to describe what their God was like. Um, we'll cover that in more detail in a couple of months' time. But we shouldn't expect the Bible to be a scientific textbook. Okay, um, so what is the Bible then? I've said a lot about what it's not. Well, first of all, it's a very long story. Um, God could have given us a book of doctrines, a book of truths, definitions, and described himself in great detail, but he didn't want to. You know, God, it says God is love, um, which means God is relationship. You know, God is a God of relationship. He exists in community. So it's a story. He get, what he gave us was a story of his interaction and his relationship with a people. And through that, to appeal to the whole of humanity for relationship. So it's a long love story. 
and it comes to us in many different ways, lots of different types of literature. We have their songs, we have their prayers, we have parts of their history, we have their hopes for the future, their prophecies and so on, even drama, all these different kinds of things. But fundamentally, it's a narrative of God reaching out to humanity initially through a particular people. So it's God's love story, God's love letter to human beings, to the whole of creation in fact. Um, so, okay, so we can see ourselves in the story um, we can we can identify with certain parts of the story, but it's so important to keep the whole picture in mind. You know, we need to have a big picture approach with the Bible, not getting too bogged down in the details. Now, it's not that the details are not important, but we've always got to keep that whole picture in mind. So it's a long story. A couple of things now about what the the Bible is as well before we go into our our break in a bit. Um, there's this thing called perspicuity. Um, now perspicuity means clarity really and the idea of the perspicuity of scripture is that anybody whether they're trained or not trained with the help of the Holy Spirit can understand God's message through reading the Bible. Um, I'm an example of that. I became a Christian through reading the Bible although I did have some background knowledge but God spoke to me clearly through the Bible. However, the Bible isn't nearly as clear on many things as some people think, and that's why you've got about 9,000 Christian denominations who all have slightly different takes on what the Bible is and what it means and what it clearly teaches. So the overall message and God's nature, that does come through clearly, but a lot of the details and not as clear as some might think. So you end up bumping into Christians who are equally uh, spiritual and, and God-loving and Bible-believing that have a different view about certain things than you might. So that's where we need to be humble about our own opinions. And yes, that we know that the overall message comes through clearly. So there, you know, perspicuity does work, but at a general level but when it comes down to specifics we just need to be that little bit careful now that doesn't mean that we stop seeking and stop wanting to understand um, it does mean that we need to sort of listen fairly widely to what's going on and who's you know different different streams um, and we, we, we you know we want the Holy Spirit to lead us into more truth but it just means we need to be a little bit a bit humble when we come upon people that think differently to us. Okay, next next couple of things. Um, how did inspiration work? Now, the inspiration of the Bible is the is how the Bible somehow came from the heart of God, from the Holy Spirit to us. How did that work? So, in two Timothy three sixteen, it says in the older translations, it says um, all Scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching and training. And so that's where the inspiration bit comes from. Now, um, some people have imagined that to be more like the authors being inspired. So people imagine that these were brilliant people, really, you know, geniuses, you know, like, like Picasso or, or a great writer, they would be inspired and they would write. But that isn't what that scripture says. It says, 
the newer translations express it better. It says all scripture is God breathed. So it's like God breathed out the scriptures. So it doesn't depend on that scripture. It doesn't depend so much on the authors. It was what God intended. So how did that work? You know, we imagine did, you know, was Isaiah or Paul or one of these guys, were they sitting one day in their little room and suddenly their mind goes blank and their, their eyes go all funny and they, they kind of go into a trance uh, and they're writing away, they don't know what they're doing and then two hours later they come to and they think, oh my goodness, look at all this, where did all this writing come from? Um, that isn't what, what happened, you know, that, that you can see that in the writing, that's not what's going on. Um, neither did the Holy Spirit grab hold of their hand with the pen in it and sort of make them like like a puppet, you know, like a glove puppet or something. He, he didn't make them do the, do these things. You can see in the Bible that the, the writers of Scripture were consciously writing. They were deliberately writing. They were choosing exactly what to say. They were sometimes incorporating stuff that already existed into what they were writing. And they were writing for a specific purpose. So they were not aware at that time that they were writing something that would still be read thousands of years later. They had specific reasons to write to specific people. But in a really mysterious but quite amazing way, God was overseeing the whole project so that when you put all of their writings together, his message and what he wants to say comes out. And that human side to the Bible doesn't stop God from doing what he wants to do through it and expressing himself and that's really encouraging because if God can use imperfect ordinary human beings to encapsulate his message and bring it to the world then God can use us as well you know he can engage with us and use us to represent him so it is miraculous inspiration um, God breathed out the scriptures using human beings who didn't know that they were doing that, which is quite amazing. So inerrancy, let's have a quick uh, look at inerrancy. Um, what is that? Uh, this is a bit of a biggie for some people. Now, up until the 19th century, um, most Christians believed that the Bible was the word of God, but they didn't really try and spell out how that exactly worked. And, you know, they just didn't really question it so much. However, in the particularly in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, you had the rise of a whole movement of liberal theology that was really criticising the Bible, really doubting it, casting doubt on, on the history and the reliability of the Bible, and really attacking traditional Christian beliefs. Um, and really, we're actually doing a lot of harm, destroying a lot of people's faith in the process. So some Bible-believing Christians got together, uh, particularly big in America, and they said, right, enough's enough. We've got to, we've got to stand against this tide of, of, of this barrage of, of anti-Bible teaching. And so they, they all signed up to something they called the Fundamentals of the Faith. And that's where they, they became known as fundamentalists. Now, fundamentalism is, is kind of got a bit of a bad name now. But in those days, it just meant Bible-believing Christians, really, that, that believed certain fundamentals. And out of that, not all of them, but quite a few of them, started to really strongly say, no, every single word of Scripture is true. So they said, you know, in the original languages, every word 
of what God has given us is absolutely free from error. It's true and it has no failings, no mistakes. It is completely inerrant. It has no errors in it. Now that's a claim that the Bible itself doesn't even make. You know, the Bible itself doesn't even claim that. But when you see where that came from, it came as a, as a reaction to liberal, harmful attacks on the Bible. So they almost overreacted and said they drew a line in the sand. And this idea that the original scriptures, the original documents were totally free from error is still something that a lot of people hold to, particularly in America, very, very strongly. Um, so it did catch on, um, but a lot of Christians are beginning to see the weaknesses in that view. Um, which tends to underplay this human side to the Bible. So what I'm going to do now, perhaps unfairly, is I'm going to leave that hanging. <laughs> um, we're going to have a bit of a break. And whilst we're doing that, whilst we're having some uh, tea or coffee and the odd scone, um, we'll just reflect a bit. So there's a couple of things you could reflect on. Uh, one is which of these non-ideal approaches to the Bible, um, if any, reflect possible stages on your own journey and do you need to adjust your thinking in that um, and secondly if you want to start continue thinking about this inerrancy thing can you think of possible theological reasons to argue for inerrancy you know what is it that's so important about this that makes it for some people important to argue for it okay which it's interesting sometimes to get into people's minds and you, you might yourself think well I, I believe that so why is that important to you all right, so we're going to have a break, uh, about a quarter of an hour, grab a coffee, grab a scone, and then we'll do a little bit of discussion and get back on again. All right? Okay, so um, thoughts on inerrancy then. Um, I know there's been some good discussions happening. Uh, one of the reasons why people like the idea um, is because, as, as people have been saying, it's easier to draw a line in the sand, it's clearer, and so on. But one of the, the key theological reasons why people argue for it is they say, well, God cannot lie. It's impossible for God to lie. The Bible says so. So if one of these manuscripts has a, an error in it, that's not true. Therefore, God can lie. And God can't lie. Therefore, there can't be any errors. Now, to me, that sort of minimises God's ability to work through imperfect human beings and sort of under-emphasises that. Um, so, to my mind, they're not in conflict. The other thing is, um, and this again is, is when you, they were battling this liberal theology, if, you, if some of it might be in error, then how can you trust any of it? That's the clincher for a lot of people. It's like, oh, well, if there's a mistake in it, any of it could be wrong. Now, again, I think that's stretching the case rather, uh, rather a lot. Um, these views underemphasize God's ability to get his message across, and they don't take account of the fact that God can use imperfect human beings to do it. But that, that's why people get a bit worried sometimes if you say, well, there might be the odd little slip in there um, but for example when they were writing the Bible 
they, I mean it happened over thousands of years, you know, about 1500 years or so, um, they were potentially incorporating non-inspired earlier pre-existing material. So they were probably taking lists of names, genealogies, you know, if they write a long list of names out, that would have been in existence. They would have been taking lists of equipment and numbers and all that kind of stuff that's in there in the Bible. Um, they would have taken bits of existing history and edited it and put it in. Luke did that, you know, with his gospel. He was editing, he was bringing together stories and researching everything like a historian, bringing in pre-existing stuff that in itself wasn't necessarily inspired. Now the question is, if there was a bit of a mistake in one of the genealogies and there were a couple of names reversed, or maybe there was a name missing, or maybe there was a, a number wrong in the number of donkeys or something like that, did God, like some kind of uh, spiritual sovereign autocorrect, um, as they were writing, you know how your phone thinks, oh no, you didn't mean to say that, you meant to say this. <laughs> and sometimes it kind of comes out a bit embarrassing. Um, but is God exercising this kind of autocorrect function when they take these non-inspired bits of material into the Bible? Well, no, he didn't. He didn't overrule, necessarily, what they were doing. So, do these sort of perfect manuscripts have to exist? I was, I was saying to somebody in the break, um, Steve, I think, we, we only have translations of copies of copies of the Bible. Now, each translation is different. It has its strengths and its weaknesses. None of them is perfect because they were all created by imperfect human beings. However, it doesn't prevent the Bible from speaking to us with the aid of the Holy Spirit, God gets his message across. Now we're constantly getting better at translating, they're constantly revising and trying to get to the nub of the meaning. People often um, criticise, uh, you know, people say, oh well, you know, the Bible's gone through different languages, it's got so many copies and copies and copies, it's bound to be garbled, it's like Chinese whispers. Well, it isn't actually. We actually know to a staggering degree what the original manuscripts actually said because of the science of textual criticism and we can compare there's so many documents, particularly in the New Testament, there are so many copies, they all have problems, they all have errors. But by comparing one branch of documents with another and researching it carefully, we can know with a very good degree of accuracy what the original said, but not perfectly. There are still areas where we're not totally sure what the original said, and if we do know what it said, we're not totally sure what it means, therefore we don't quite know how to translate it. <laughs> So there are these imperfections, and I think these imperfections will stay until the end of time. You know, we're not going to resolve all of it. But if God, if the Bible, and it does, function as God's word, and if God speaks his message clearly through the Bible with all those little errors and imperfections in place, then would it really make any difference at all if there was the odd little error and imperfection in the original manuscripts? Wouldn't make any practical difference. Um, and now that helps us because if you believed strongly in inerrancy, every time somebody comes up with a bit of archaeology that says, or a bit of um, another manuscript, you know, somebody analyzes something and calls into question, well, you know, there's a famous thousand that's missing somewhere in the Old Testament. It talks about 
24,000, or is it 25,000 men or something like that. In the New Testament it talks about 24 and they go, well, where's that thousand disappeared to? You know, If we're not bothered so much about inerrancy, then we don't need to worry about every last possibility where the, you know somebody might find a mistake in the Bible. We don't need to worry about it. Um, it doesn't stop God's message coming through. Um, in fact, some of the differences between different writers in the Bible actually give the Bible a greater authenticity because people do have different recollections of events, people see different things as important, so they write things down in a slightly different way. If the Bible was made up, you, people would make sure that it was absolutely consistent throughout and it would be too good to be true in a way. So these slight differences actually give the Bible a greater ring of authenticity. But it's a human book as well as a divine one. It has all the hallmarks of human writing. Um, but it is God's word and it is authoritative. We do hold that the Bible is um, is very is, is so important for understanding who Jesus is, who God is, it's it's our guide in all of our you know our faith and our practice. Um, it has that divine ring of truth as JB Phillips talked about. It has that an amazing consistency, it has an amazing balance. When you look at the whole thing, the message comes through. But we don't need to get too hung up about this, um, this inerrancy based business. Um, okay, so don't get too hung up on inerrancy. Culture is important. Um, the Bible does speak to every age, it speaks into every culture. Um, but it did originate in a specific point in history. Each book came with a different set of circumstances. Uh, so if we can help, if we can see things through their eyes to begin with, then we're in a better place to be able to understand what it means in our day. And if we, if we ignore their culture and their circumstances, then we'll misunderstand quite easily what the Bible's going to say. And we'll talk about that a lot next session, because I want to talk about interpretation, hermeneutics, how to... Uh, understand what the Bible's saying and give us tools so that we can then go on and, and study all these different subjects that we're going to go on to. But I find it really encouraging that God did engage with people in their culture where they were at. Because if God engages, if God even accommodates himself to somebody's culture and a specific point in history, then God will do that in our day. He'll engage with us in our era. Um, and we, you know, he, he accommodates himself to us as well, so that he approaches us in a way we can understand. So, okay, so culture is important, mustn't forget it. Some people get very nervous if you start talking about culture because they start thinking that you'll just say, well, it was different then, so we can ignore this teaching and that teaching and the other teaching. And how do you distinguish between something that is conditioned by the culture and something that is true at all times and in all places? And that, again, we'll look at that next time. So next thing, uh, the Bible speaks with many voices and we need to hear them together. Now there are of course sceptics that love to point out apparent contradictions in the Bible. There are many evangelical scholars who, who try very hard to reconcile the tricky bits of scripture and try and make everybody agree with each other. Um, I, th I think if you put Paul, the Apostle Paul and James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, in a room together, they would pretty quickly disagree about quite a lot. Now they wouldn't disagree about Jesus, about who he is and the message, but how to do things and, and stuff about the law, I think they would disagree. 
you know, when you when you read about James in the book of Acts and, and what he did and the people that came from him and how legalistic they were, you think there's something going on there. And when you read his letter, that comes through in the letter. You can see it. However, if you put his letter in the Bible, and that's why I think James is one of the last books to be adopted into the New Testament canon. Uh, when you put his letter alongside Paul's letters and you let them both speak, you can suddenly see the balance and the wisdom and you can see God's hand in allowing them to say their bit but in such a way that it doesn't actually distort the gospel message. So um, I wonder whether that's why James only wrote one letter and Paul got to write 13 of them because <laughs> maybe he had a better handle on it but we need the message of James faith without deeds is dead James probably had an issue with Paul going around saying we're saved by not by deeds but by grace through faith you know but when you when you read them together and you let them bounce off each other the message the whole message of God comes through and that's the mystery and the genius of God using imperfect human beings with their own prejudices their own beliefs but but he keeps them within proper bounds so if you read it carefully James isn't really I mean he probably is a legalist but when you read his message in the light of the others you think no we do need to we need to love one another and it is a royal command in a sort of general sense to love one another and, and we do need to show our faith through our actions and they balance each other um, okay, so we let the Bible interpret itself. That's an important principle. We let the Bible interpret itself, and we look at that. When we want to decide on what's true about something, we um, we need to keep the whole Bible in view. And sometimes we've got to allow certain scriptures to become the lens through which we see others. So, a big example of this is you know, 15, 20 years ago. We took the scriptures that apparently said that women shouldn't be in leadership in the church and we used those as the lens through which we saw other scriptures which were there's neither male nor female in Christ and talked about things like Junia as a female apostle, you know, and, and um, Phoebe being a, a, a deacon in the church and, and churches that met under the leadership of women, you know, in, in the church that meets at such and such a person's house, you know, and we, we saw that through the lens of these other scriptures that we took as primary. Eventually, we realised, um, probably long after other people did, but, and still others, you know, may come eventually to, to this view, we now see the primary scriptures as there is no male nor female in Christ, and we see that there were female leaders, and, you know, and we begin to realise that you know, that certain scriptures that apparently forbade women from being in leadership were actually addressed to specific situations in specific times in history for a particular reason. And we now see the primary ones as the equality ones and we use, the other, we use them as a lens through which we see all the others. And that's the way sometimes we have to do it. We allow some scriptures to be the primary ones and we interpret the ones in the light. The difficulty comes when not everybody agrees what the primary scriptures are and that's where we need to be gracious to one another. Okay, so um, next thing, the, the Bible is a progressive revelation. 
um, it doesn't the theology of the Bible doesn't stay static from the old, the earlier scriptures through to the later ones now that's not as shocking as you might think because we you know we know that revelation increases and we know we always say don't we that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God uh, the book of Hebrews says um, you know, in earlier times, God spoke to us at various times in many ways through the prophets, and whatever. But now he's spoken to us through the Son. Um, examples of this sort of expansion. Um, there's only a really hazy understanding in the Old Testament about what happens after death. Like resurrection doesn't really happen that much or occur in, t in the Old Testament theology. In fact, the Sadducees, who were quite a powerful religious party in Jesus' day, they didn't believe any of the Bible except the first five books. They didn't accept anything except the five books of Moses as authentic. And because that didn't contain anything about resurrection, they didn't believe in resurrection. Um, but gradually through the Bible, you see this development of thought. And Jesus, of course, said, I will raise them up at the last day. Uh, another example, this is an interesting one, there are two stories in the Bible about David counting his fighting men. Now he shouldn't have done that because he was, in doing that, he was not relying on God, he was relying on his own strength and it was forbidden, he shouldn't have done it. But there are two stories, there's one in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1 in particular, and one in 1 Chronicles 21, again verse 1, and it, in, in the 2 Samuel version it says God incited David to to number the men. In the 1 Chronicles version it says Satan rose up against Israel and incited David. Yes. So was it God or was it Satan? Now what we need to remember is that the Chronicles books were written probably by Ezra the teacher and priest in order they were written quite a long time afterwards in order to reconnect the people of Israel with their history because at that time they were just coming back out of exile. A couple of generations, they've been in exile, they've been away from the land, they've been in disgrace, and the remnant of them are coming back. And so Ezra writes these books to reconnect them with their history. So they're written later. So by then there's more of an understanding that God has an adversary, Satan, who although he's sort of under God's control, because that's what Job teaches us, one of the things that, you know, Satan is limited, but he is able to do things, in a sense, independently of God. Whereas earlier on in history, the Jewish people were so fiercely monotheistic, they were so concerned about the fact that everybody else had hundreds of gods, that they, there was only one God. There was only one God that could do everything, and so they attributed everything to God, whether good or evil. And it, you can see that in the Bible. You know, if, if this happens, it's from the Lord. If this happens, it's from the Lord. And so everything is attributed mm -hmm. to God. Mm -hmm. And there's a development of thought, which is, you know what, well, actually some things happen that God doesn't like. Mm -hmm. Now, is the first version of events wrong then? Taken at face value, maybe it is, but maybe not. Because if we think, okay, Satan is limited. He can only do what God allows him to do then maybe the first set of scriptures where it says God did this, could it be that it was in God's permissive will to allow this to happen rather than his sovereign will? You know, we sometimes differentiate 
between his permissive will and his sovereign will and it's not as clean as that and it's all a bit difficult to understand really free will and, and God's sovereignty but taken from a certain point of view you could say that God allows it so from their limited viewpoint God did do this now we know that wasn't God's motive or intention it wasn't good it was it was the enemy um, but what's amazing about the scriptures is God allows himself to be represented with the limitations of the people that understood him in that way at the time. It's an incomplete and oversimplified view of God. And I think when we see that sometimes in, in stories about the wrath of God, um, I spoke about this at the beginning of this year actually, about how God's wrath at the beginning you know particularly in the Old Testament it's almost like God is this vengeful angry deity wanting to smite people for for doing wrong now we know our God is not like that um, but in those days they did present God in that sort of way because that was how everybody viewed their gods now was it wrong in some ways yes but in other ways it was just an oversimplification now I've come to understand wrath and I won't go I haven't got time to go on into it now I can point you in the direction of the podcast where I did speak about it at more length but as you read the scriptures and particularly some of the prophets where he's talking about judgment he's talking about wrath you, what begins to come out is that this wrath thing is actually more to do with consequences of people's actions coming upon them than it is God with his divine shotgun wanting to blast them and it's God warns them again and again if you do this this is what is going to happen you know in a sense they brought on the Babylonian invasion and their exile because of their pride you know Hezekiah showed off to the Babylonians showed them everything in his treasures and that kind of set in motion a chain of events which they still could have averted if they were following God they would have been prosperous they would have been powerful they would have been the chief power in the, the you know another empire wouldn't have had a chance to rise up but because they didn't follow God they laid themselves open to invasion to exile and it's presented as God's judgment on them but actually it's more to do with their the consequences the political and and yes historical consequences of their actions but God warns them again and again and he shields them from it for years and years and years and eventually says look you you at this point I'm gonna step out of the way and it's just gonna to have to happen to you you know when when Jesus I'm probably overrunning slightly but when Jesus talks to some people in the New Testament and he says unless you repent you shall all perish we tend to think of that as well he's threatening them with hell but actually what he's saying to them, they, he was talking to a bunch of religious people that did not accept that God's Messiah was going to come in the form of Jesus as, as somebody who was humble, who was willing to suffer. They wanted the Messiah to be somebody that would rise up, lead a rebellion, boot out the Romans and set up a military and political kingdom. And he's basically saying to them, look, if you persist with this version of what you think it should be, if you won't change your thinking, if you won't repent, change your thinking and become like I am, then the Romans are going to come, they're going to respond to your rebelliousness and they're going to come and wipe you all out. And that is what happened in AD 70. So it's not that God is saying, if you don't do this, I'm going to squash you. It's more, I, I respect your free will, your self-determination, I'm going to allow you 
do what you want and to have your head. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to, I'm going to shield you. I'm going to tell you again and again the right way to do things. But if you persist, I'm just going to have to let you have your head. But these will be the consequences. So again and again, we find that that's starting to come out. Um, so again, God allows himself to be presented as a wrathful deity because that is the way they expected at the time. But if we see the whole Bible, the whole revelation, we begin to see who Jesus, who, who God really is, especially through Jesus. Um, Jesus really is the lens through which we need to see everything else. So anyone who's seen Jesus has seen the Father. Um, you know, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So anything that doesn't reflect Jesus isn't really what God is like. Uh, we can come b back to that on, on future um, future sessions. So I need to wrap up because I've overshot. Uh, apologies for that. Just a few final thoughts. The Bible is the book that God wanted us to have. It is divine in origin, but it's a fully human book. And uh, I was saying earlier that there's, there's a real power an authority to the New Testament writings that don't occur in the writings of the early church after that. There's, there's something about it, there's the ring of truth that J.B. Phillips talked about. There's a weight and a majesty to the Bible, but it is still rooted in human culture. It's an authentic human story uh, with you know, imperfect human beings as the vessels through which God gave us that message of love and relationship. So I'll just finish with this quote again. This is from J.B. Phillips, uh, who translated the New Testament back in the World War II days. He said, it's not magical, nor is it faultless. Human beings wrote it. But by something which I would not hesitate to describe as a miracle, there is a concentration upon that area of inner truth which is fundamental and ageless. That, I believe, is the reason why millions of people have heard the voice of God speaking to them through these seemingly artless pages. Okay. So next time we'll uh, we'll start looking at how we're going to get from the there and then to the here and now when we look into the Bible. So, Amen. Thank you.